Hello, welcome to the Word on the Hill. I am not in Ireland right now. <laughs> Actually, what? I am in Ireland right you now. You are in Ireland right now. You are somehow magically still showing up on everyone's iPhones. Do, do you know how it happens? Um, the magic of internet? Yes. The and magic of... Rainbows. Rainbows. I actually can travel using rainbow. This is getting weird. <laughs> already, we're only 25 seconds in. It's already getting weird. It's Dude, already going off the rails. Have you ever Have you ever thought about what superpower you would get? I think that I might. I think I might take that one. That you can you can do extraordinary travel by rainbow. So wherever a rainbow is present in the world, you can transfer there as soon as you'd like. But you can only go where a rainbow is present. Right. So you just have to wait around. Do you remember the game of thinking up lame superpowers? Yeah. The lamest superpowers that you could. Uh huh. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. That's a fun game. I, I can't think of any fun ones off either. the top of my head. But well, that's that's because it's the fifth Sunday in Lent. We're deep into Lent, you guys. Is this the last week? Is the is Palm Sunday next week? Are we finally almost there? I can't remember. You're the priest. No, it's okay. I think we have a ways to go still. Let Lent me, feels let me long. Let this me year. No, no. Next week is Palm Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week is Palm Sunday. This is, this has felt like a long Lent to me, dude. I'll tell you, man. Some of the people I've been pastoring through this Lent, they've uh, felt the same way. Well, it is. Are you whistling? Are you bored? Lemes, you were you singing. The people saying. Yeah. Oh, I was singing. I was like, why is that in my head? Because <laughs> of myself. Yep. It is the fifth Sunday, fifth Sunday of Lent, Father Peter. And Dude, our, I, you know what? I am totally done with borrowing after this Lent. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> it never gets old. <laughs> Come on! Oh my gosh! Speaking of Lent and borrowing, do you need something back? No, it's the the first reading. I was trying to connect it to Ezekiel, dude. You know, speaking of speaking of, sometimes you call money bones, right? Oh Is yeah, true? yeah, yeah, dude, absolutely. You Twenty bones. Well, speaking of bones, it's Ezekiel. The first, <laughs> our you, first reading. Do you know that I call pizza crust pizza bones? Pizza bones. That makes me not want to eat them anymore. That'd be like the stuffed crust pizza with the cheese inside. It's like oh. it's like marrow. It's all getting <laughs> gross. Anyway. It's uh, our first reading for this week is coming from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 12 through 14. Not too long. Not too long at all. And then we have Psalm... Nothing like the gospel. No. And then Psalm 131 through 8, broken up appropriately. <laughs> yes. With the response coming from 7. And then our second our, reading... You can't steal my second reading just because I stole your response. <laughs> our second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 8 through 11. And then the gospel is a long one, dude. I mean, you know, exactly what? four verses longer than last week. You prophesied before you're like, don't they get longer than this? And I was like, no, it's like warming up a couple for weeks the marathon. Ago. Holy cow. I'll tell you, man, like, uh, you know, you really do have to warn people, you know, you just have to yeah. warn them and be do like, do you warn people before mass? I do. I mean, like at the beginning of mass, at the beginning of mass, like, you like, guys might want to stretch during the sign of peace. <laughs> not during the sign of peace. You, I mean, that's the seventh inning stretch. During, I was thinking of that the the non liturgical moment where we all stand up and greet one another. Yeah, I I, I do. I say just stretch. just pay attention. Our our gospel's going to be particularly long because like the expectation because you get halfway through and you're like, how long? Are Make sure your shins are feeling loose and warm. Yep, you do. do it's going to be a long Sunday. And then our gospel is from John 11, 1 through 45. Yeah, you better believe it is. That's a long one, dude. It is. It's um, a lot of death, dude. A lot of life. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of both 
That's the theme of this week's readings. A lot of death, a lot of life. A lot of both. A lot of both. Dude, that's a good subtitle. Thanks, man. You're a good subtitle. Hey, man, I am a sub title. So we're in Ezekiel, dude. Like, yeah. Let's prophesy to some bones, man. Okay. Can I say a few words about Ezekiel before we dive into nope. it? Nope. <laughs> okay. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> talk to me about Zeke, dude. Ezekiel. I just here's all I want to say, just for way of setting up the context. Okay. I want I want to contextualize Ezekiel, this. Ezekiel's a little bit different than the rest of the. He's one of the 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 big time prophets, right? Yeah. But he's and he's speaking about the same content that. You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the rest are speaking. But he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the punishment that came from their total idolatry and wandering away from God. Uh, talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. But he sees it from a different perspective. So Jeremiah, for example, is going to watch all this stuff take place. Okay. Um, Ezekiel, uh, he was a priest, and he was taken in one of the first rounds of exile. So when Babylon oh. came and attacked Jerusalem— um, there were there were actually a few hundred years between the time that they attacked Jerusalem and it was finally destroyed. There was a big gap in between. Oh wow! Uh, maybe not that. I, I forget what the exact number, but there was a lot of. Uh, um, it was destroyed in 586. Yeah. Anyway, there was a great deal of time in between. So Ezekiel was in one of the many waves of exiles that were taken away from Jerusalem. So he is giving these prophecies about Jerusalem and about the Holy Land away from Jerusalem and away from the Holy Land. So he's kind of so what that means is that he's given an inside view into, in a certain sense, into God's view on this. So Jeremiah is an eyewitness; he watches it happen. Ezekiel is given God's perspective; he's given a special grace of of a vision of what's actually happening. So he sees. The practicals, what's actually happening on the ground, but he also gets all of these spiritual realities that are happening from the divine perspective along with it. And so it's Ezekiel that we get that great imagery of the chariot wheels. And he's always shown, early on, he's shown this image of chariot wheels representing God. And what God is essentially saying to Israel is, look, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going down, but I'm not tied to those things. I cannot be put in a box. So if Israel's going off in exile, I'm going to be right there with them. God's on wheels, basically. (laughs) Nice chariots of fire. That's where we get that imagery. <laughs> Absolutely. But the idea, you know, and not just in Israel, but in the ancient world, I mean, gods in the ancient Near East were tied to geographic locations. So if you lost those geographic locations or if they were defeated in battle, then it meant your god was dead, basically. And that's really problematic for a nation like Israel. Yeah. So God wants to make it really clear, like, no, 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 no. I've given you this promised land. Now I'm taking it away. But I am not tied to it. I am on wheels and I'm coming to exile with you. Ooh, yeah. So there's there's some beautiful insights that Ezekiel gives from a very divine point of view that the other prophets don't have access to, which is, makes it one of my favorite books. Um, we're way at the end or toward the end of the book of Ezekiel where we've moved from the bad news into looking forward to the good news. And basically what Ezekiel is seeing in chapter 37, chapter 37 is a very famous chapter in the book. We don't actually read the famous part. The famous part is this image of, of the, the valley dry, of the dry bones. Them bones, them, them bones, them, them dry bones, bones. Um, which we don't actually have. But the dry bone, we have, there, there's kind of a mixed mixed imagery here. And we get the second imagery that's mixed in with the first. But I just want to mention what happens right before this. So Ezekiel has shown this vision. And and remember, for the Israelites, for the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, all seems lost. Their holy city is destroyed. Their temple, which housed God, has been overtaken by the battle. I mean, we are lost. It's done. And what Ezekiel sees is this vision of this huge valley full of dried bones. 
Um, bones, obviously, meaning something's dead, dead animals, dead humans, dead, dead things. Uh, dried, meaning they're really, really dead. They've been dead for a long time. Decomposed and, decomposing, and of all life. Like done for. And so the idea is, yeah, it feels like Israel is done. Decomposed, case closed, you know, close the sarcophagi. Decomposed, We're, case closed. Close the sarcophagi. <laughs> and uh and and what he sees is of course these bones starting to get up and come back together and then they grow you know tendons and muscles and synapses and or sinews and skin and everything on top and they actually are resurrected you have images of dead bodies that are brought back to life which is showing that yeah Israel feels dead right now but I'm going to bring her back to life someday which on one hand is an image for Israel herself. Right. She will leave exile. She will go back to Jerusalem. She right. will rebuild. But even bigger and broader than that is an image looking forward toward Christ. Nobody knew, you know, in the time of Ezekiel, even in the time of Jesus, nobody really knew whether Ezekiel's vision was kind of metaphorical or not. They're like, oh, it's kind of a metaphor that we're sort of coming back to life. But in a very real sense, the concept of resurrection, mainly from this passage, from this imagery, this this prophecy, the idea of resurrection always stood as a marker for the end of exile. Resurrected bodies stood as a marker for the end of exile. What Jesus is doing when he steps out of the ground on Easter Sunday is saying that not just political exile, but the long exile of sin is over. Ezekiel's vision was way more than you ever dreamed it was. It's not just geographic exile. It is a spiritual exile that is now ended. What Ezekiel saw in his dream is now standing in front of you. And, you know, right after the Valley of the Dry Bones, we move into what we have this week, which is changing from a valley of dried bones into graves. Same imagery, but now these dead bodies, people coming up, rising out of the grave. And it it actually makes it explicit. Oh, my people, I will open your graves because you feel dead and have you rise from them and bring you back into the land of Israel. And you should know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and you will rise from them. Oh, my people, and I'll put my spirit in you so that you may live and I'll settle you upon your land. Thus, you shall know. Know that I am the Lord. I have promised I will do it, says the Lord. So, you know, it, it sounds if you're reading this like, oh, no, this is very tangible. You're going back to your land. You're going to have political freedom. You're going to have all these things. Is that really what Jesus is doing? Well, yeah, it is what Jesus is doing because he's showing us there's a new Israel. There's a new heavens and a new earth that are being ushered in with this. There is a new land. There is a new people of Israel. And we actually say every Sunday in the creed that we look forward as well to the resurrection of the body. Because we believe that this prophecy from Ezekiel 37 doesn't just apply to Jesus, because if it happened to Jesus, it's also going to happen to all of us. We will rise from the dead eventually. We will have glorified, resurrected bodies. We are literally in the smack middle of this prophecy, which is unfolding itself in front of our very eyes. Jesus inaugurates the end of exile, and we are living in the midst of it, and we will we will live, spiritually speaking, to see the end of exile, even in our very bodies. Does that make sense? It It was kind of lofty. It does. It's funny. It's like, as you were talking, my my heart was going into these places of going like, toggling between sadness that this life isn't longer, Mm. and how I could use some rest, (laughs) and then thankfulness that this life is as short as it is, because Mm. I long for resurrection. And like, like, because... Because I can think about heaven and I'm like, dude, I'm going to have a body. Dude, what do you do with your body? You have to, like, like you build stuff. I'm very, I want to do woodworking. I'm just saying in heaven. I get my body back. I want some, do some woodworking. 
You think you can cut down trees in the new heavens and the new earth? Absolutely. All right. I'm just asking. E- either that or I can do some seriously amazing bonsai. Bonsai. Dude, I- I'm going to be, do- cool. be doing scuba diving. I'm going to be doing a ton of it. I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro finally. Dude, I'm going to levitate up Kilimanjaro and meet you there. And I, 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 I mean... I don't know if you guys are laughing on on you know listening to us, but I I really do think you know when we t- we talk about you know we have this idea I talk about this all the time yeah we have this very escapist idea of what heaven is, mm. which is very much not Christian actually very heretical. Every time we picture heaven, we don't picture resurrected glorified bodies. We're only seeing half of the story. We're not seeing the fullness of what mm. heaven actually is. And we're told that there's a new heavens and a new earth and a glorified bodies that we'll have. You know, heaven is not this weird image of us all sitting on clouds strumming harps, you know, <laughs> which is how so many of us just sort of think about it or we don't think about it at all. There is a new heavens. and What on earth does that look like? Well, I fully believe. I hope and I pray that I'm going to be climbing mountains in in the new heavens and the new earth, in the yes, eschaton, because yes. I'll have a glorified body and I won't get tired. And I'm going to sprint up Everest, which I've always wanted to do here, but I'll actually get to do it in a glorified Everest. I, I mean, I don't know. This sounds sort of weird to even talk this way. And I has not seen, ear has not heard. We don't know what it's going to look like, but I fully believe that God is going to give us all of these things. Heaven, just like this prophecy is way more than Israel ever dreamed it was. So too, I believe heaven is going to be way more than we ever dreamed it could possibly be. And you'll still have to do fishing and light fires because Jesus ate fish out of fire on the beach. Mm. He didn't make it though. Oh yeah, he did make it in John. Dude, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. dude, I mean, I don't know. It's I, there's something super mysterious about how wonderful it's going to be. It's fascinating. I mean, I think that the, what's the point of all this? The point is what the scriptures are showing us is that our expectations are always way too small. Mm. And anyway, we're, we're kind of getting far afield. Well, actually, we're not, because that's a, here's a good segue into the psalm. And I was only thinking about it in terms of, of Ezekiel 37 before, but what the psalm says, the response itself, it's 130, which means this is toward the very end of the Psalter. And as the Psalter draws to a close, um, whoever compiled the Psalter together was trying to bring psalms that point us toward... Uh, toward the fulfillment, the end of exile, toward the day that God was going to make all things right and all things new again. So that's what these psalms are meant to do. And so what this psalm says, 130, with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. It's the word fullness that I keep coming back to. Mm. Because, you know, you see Ezekiel's vision. Oh, we're going to go back to our little geographic plot of land. We're going to build our small buildings again. We're going to have all these things. And God's like, no, 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 no. There's mercy. You're going to be forgiven. You're actually going to be freed from all this punishment. But then there's going to be fullness of redemption. Not redemption in your small, narrow ways that we sort of have conditioned ourselves to expect, but redemption in ways that you've never dreamed about. The fullness of redemption. Mm. How is that redemption going to come? Well, God himself will come and do it and step into human history. Again, all these things that for the Old Testament perspective, you're like, that would never happen. You, you wouldn't have even dreamed that that sort of thing. But it's God saying, no, 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 your perspective is too small. I want to offer you not just mercy, not just redemption, but fullness of redemption. Right. I keep getting reminded in these readings and a little bit later on in our gospel too, about the nature of confession of how in confession, it's not just that, okay, I get to get this thing off my chest, but it is gone. It is swept away. It is washed in the mercy of God's ocean. You know, is it St. Teresa of Avila? Talked about St. Augustine. The, the drop of water in the ocean. 
Yep. One, our, our sin is like one drop of water in the oh, vast ocean of God's mercy. Maybe that is. That's something. I think it's Avila. That's a pretty saintly person who ever said that. But but the her idea was, you know, just like in the flood, in the time of Noah, it didn't really have to rain for 40 days and 40 nights to flood the earth. It could have rained far less than that. But God gives an overabundance of rain. Just like in his mercy, he gives an overabundance of it. And that's literally what happens. We have access to it constantly. Every time we go to confession, we can access an overabundance of mercy. The mercy that's going to be poured out in forgiveness of our sins is going to totally outweigh the sin that we've actually committed. Mm. You know what I mean? Yep. And in that, I'm hearing this psalm. There's mercy, not only mercy, but there is a fullness. There's a totality of Mm. redemption. He's going to make you back into the person that you were always meant to be. Yeah. Not to get too kind of lofty and pie in the sky and abstract, but I'm really struck by it. So there you go. Which takes us to Romans. Rome. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, here's here's what I have to say about this. Those who are in, yeah, it, But Paul, you're not in the flesh. On the contrary, you're in the spirit, brother. Yeah. Here's the problem. This is where a lot of our Protestant friends and us get into trouble together. And where there's been lots of misinterpretations of Romans in general and the New Testament, uh, Romans in particular and the New Testament in general. Paul uses the term flesh in two different ways. And this is important because we've talked about this idea of this sort of Gnosticism, this this disembodied image of heaven that we kind of have, this non-material thing. Part of it is because of passages like this, where... It actually sounds very Gnostic. One of the the hearts of Gnosticism, this very ancient church heresy, (laughs) says that things of the material world are inherently bad. Things of the spiritual world are inherently good. So we kind of have to transcend the physical world for the sake of the spiritual world. And the church says, "Uh uh-uh, not true. Nobody got time for that. But you can kind of see from a passage like this how you'd be led to that. Well, if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. and, and, And the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And there's this weird juxtaposition. Paul, and you kind of take some deduction. In the New Testament, there's two different ways Paul uses the word flesh, which is the Greek word sarx, sarx. S-A-R-X. He can mean, fl- so for example. Are you, say- are you saying that he's sarcastic? Ah, sarcastic. So you could say something like Jesus Christ took on human flesh. Is that negative? No, that's Absolutely. very important. It's very positive. You can also say something like, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Context is everything. It's the same word, mainly because Greek is a weak language, which means one word can mean a lot of different things. I call it rich. You call it weak. Uh, Weak, and it's a small vocabulary. Let's call it that. Okay. Because that does make it rich because of the various meanings. But here, when Paul uses the flesh, he doesn't mean our bodies. He doesn't mean our humanity. He means our broken sinfulness. When he says in 1 Corinthians, you're acting fleshy or fleshly rather than spiritual. He's saying it's basically the idea of being tied to your appetites and your physical desires alone, outside of anything else, outside of guidance beyond that. When left to our own devices, merely our body, our uh, Philippians, Paul talks about your God being your belly. That's what he means here, your Mm. fallen, broken, sinful appetites. Mm. He's not talking about our humanity. He's not talking about our physicality because Jesus takes those things on and makes them profoundly good. He's talking about our brokenness and our sinfulness. And what he's saying is, as long as you're in merely your humanness, merely your appetites, merely following your animalistic desires, your passions, passions, you're not going to do it. You're not going to please God once you're locked in those things. 
But if you can actually use your humanity, your flesh, your humanness right. to partner with the divine that's been given to you as a free gift, mm. then you've got it going on. Yes. But we got to be careful with this because this does lead to a Gnostic kind of escapist's um, non-material vision of what Christianity is, which is very, very dangerous because this is some of the most ancient heresies all said something like, well, Jesus was fully God, but he wasn't really a human because he, God can't take on human flesh. God can't take on, you know, this, this lousy body that we have and God can't die for Pete's sake because he's God. So he must have just looked like he was human. And the church says, no, that's a very dangerous way to look at this. And I mean, in a certain sense, when I look back at Ezekiel and I say, you know, there is there is this valuing of actually the physicality. Yes. I will open your graves and have you rise from them. The The destruction of the body is not what is the intent of the Lord. It's actually meant to have you dwell bodily and be rich within that. Yes, that's exactly it. Which... Actually, it does lead us, I think, quite well into John. Uh, well, yeah, because we got Laz. Lazzy. Lazzy. Dude, so, Laz. Lazarus, Laz this is Lowe. that story of Jesus uh, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. It's a, it's kind of a weird story. Dude, I like really the name Laszlo. Laszlo. I think I like it because of a real genius. The dude who lived in the closet was name was Laszlo Hollyfeld, but that's not here, here nor there. It's too obscure for my blood. Dude, come on. Really? The dude who lived is. in the... La- what is real genius? Um, can you... We stopped the podcast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, dude, that was a kidding. I was, was No, it wasn't. No, I was not. I was kidding because, like, no. dude, I was just trying to say, that, like, you don't know real genius? I'm sorry. I wish I did. I okay. try to keep up. I try to hang with you. Okay, dude. It's Most okay. of the time I can, but yep. this one's... <laughs> okay. This one's too hard. Val Kilmer, Genius College. Okay, so I remember Val Kilmer. Yeah, we're in. We're in. Where did he go, by the way? Um, Speaking of someone needing to get resurrected from the dead. uh, No kidding, man. Career wise, (laughs) (laughs) I hope he doesn't sue us. Anyway, uh, the rising of Lazarus. Let's do it. Um, Lazarus. The first thing we need to know about Lazarus: there was a man ill, Lazarus from Bethany. Lazarus is probably one of Jesus's best friends. Okay, he's not an apostle. He's not one of the twelve, but. Remember, Jesus in the, later on will actually go and stay in the house of, of – he probably – during Holy Week, he probably stays at their house. Oh. Because remember, he stays in Bethany. Yeah. In somebody's house during Holy Week. Yeah. Where does he – who lives in Bethany that's close to Jesus that might have a bed for him? He's probably with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. I, I mean, Martha and Mary, you know, he they appear a number of times, right? Lazarus isn't mentioned too many times. But Martha and Mary certainly are. And we know that Jesus has this really close relationship to them, right? Yeah. So it's just this little insight because later on, Jesus is actually going to weep at Lazarus's death, which is is so interesting that John points out that emotion. Number one, because Jesus knows the end of the story. He knows he's going to be risen. But in his humanness, there's still this idea that this is my friend and he's died. It's also this little built-in reminder that even though that Jesus is God and he knows how the story works and he knows the plan of salvation— he also knows that death was not originally part of the human experience. This was not supposed to be. This is a result of sin. So the fact that the God-man actually weeps at death, knowing that it's not going to win in the end, is a really telling insight into the nature of what death actually is. I feel like I have to use this a lot with people who just kind of want to get through the sufferings of their lives. And just like, I just want to be on the other side rather than actually having to experience what they need to experience while they're experiencing it. 
Cause, yes. Yeah. Because right. like the reality is, is that Jesus on a certain level knows, dude, this is going to be over soon, and he can just be like, "Come over, guys." And he weeps anyway, though. And he weeps but that's anyway. That's what's fascinating be, because because of the damage that death is. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's a good way to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a that's a bit of a a precursor, I suppose. So yeah, here's here's um Lazarus, this friend of Jesus. Uh, Mary, by the way, it says, John says, by the way, Mary was the one who had anointed him with oil and dried his, his, uh, his feet with her hair. Everybody gets mad at her. And there was her brother Lazarus that was ill. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, master, the one who you love, your really good friend. In other words, he's ill. And Jesus heard it. My computer's acting up. There we go. Jesus heard it. Where are we? I, I just want to read that. I don't want to read the whole thing because it's crazy long, but I just want to read this first part. Um, your brother is ill, master of the one who you love is ill. Jesus heard it and he said, this illness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God, which is really similar to what he said last week to the guy who was blind. Remember when the apostles were like, well, who made him blind? Was it his own sin or his parents? He says, no, no, no. It's to show God's glory. Yes. Jesus essentially says the same thing here. This death is not the end. It's to show God's glory. Right. Um, now, Jesus loved Martha, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was ill, he remained for two days where he was. He had to stop and like sit with that for a little while. And then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And I think this is interesting because the disciples are like, wait a second. We just came from Judea and we left because they tried to stone you. Mm. They wanted to kill you there, Jesus. And he's like, I know, but we have to go anyway. Um, he says, he gets kind of cryptic. He's like, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light in this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told him, our friend Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to awake him. He's bringing out that very Johannine theme of light and dark mm. again. Yeah. Remember last week we talked about those who are in the light become light. Right. Jesus wants to go back to this place of darkness, quite frankly, and bring light. It's a place where they've experienced darkness because they tried to kill him. It's where they're about to experience great darkness because they will kill him. But he's like, I am going to be a witness in the midst of it. This Lazarus, he's dead. We're going to wake him up. I really like that line. We're going to wake him up. Isn't that great? Yep. It's like, you're like the dead. Yeah. I love that line. I do too. And I, I like, I just see like, not only is this a particular reality, but like, He's demonstrating how he is the Lord of life and death. Yes. Yes. And absolutely. How, 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 in a certain sense, the death of God's faithful ones are going to glorify him, even if, because, because Lazarus had to die a second time. I mean, like, yep. this is hard. I mean, like, yep. the brother had to go through it twice. And even in the next chapter, they try to kill him. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Lazarus has got a tough break. Yeah. He, he really he does. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out what he says next. Um, the disciples, right on cue, don't understand. They're like, well, if he's just asleep, he's going to be fine. <laughs> right? He'll be saved <laughs> if he's just asleep. Because, But Jesus was talking about his death, and they thought he was just sleeping and taking a nap. And so Jesus had to say more clearly, no, 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 Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you could. He says so that you may believe, but I'm reminded of that line a few lines earlier, so that God can be glorified. Yes. Um. Let's go to him. And then Thomas, called Didymus, T. Diddy, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go and die with him. What do you think he means? I've been sitting on that line I don't for a know. lot of the morning. I don't know. Thomas. This is Doubting Thomas, yeah. for all of you who don't recognize him. Doubting Thomas, who gets such a bad rap, 
who needs a little bit of, of material proof before he can wrap his mind around what Jesus has done. Let's go die with him. Who does he want to die with? Or who is he suggesting? Lazarus. I don't think so. That's what I thought at first. And maybe I'm wrong on this. What did the apostles just say? They're like, no, we can't go down to Judea because they want to kill you there. They're trying to stone you. And Jesus is like, I have to go see my friend. So Thomas is like, you're probably going to get killed if you go back. And you know what? We're ready. We're going to die with you. We know that for some reason this is important to you. That's if battle you go, speech right there. It is. We're going to die with you. I'm reminded, quite frankly, of what Peter says. Right. No, I will never abandon you. I'm not going to leave. I mean, we know the end of the story. We know there's some doubt later on. But he sounds an awful lot like Peter. It's, it's kind of beautiful. It's an insight into the way he's going to fall and fail later on, despite what his, his great desires are. You know, there's our desire to do great things and be holy, and then there's the way that we fail at those later on. <laughs> we get an insight into that with Thomas here and, and Peter also. But I think he's saying, yeah, you're probably going to die down there. And he is going to die, just not quite yet. Yeah. So he's, he's on to something. <laughs> now, just a little bit more. When Jesus arrived he, arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb dead for, two, for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem. It was two miles away. That's why Jesus stays there during Holy Week. Um, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. They heard Jesus was coming. Martha went out to meet him, and Mary stayed at home, stewing. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God's going to give it to you. And Jesus said, your brother's going to rise. And Martha said, yeah, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection. I read Ezekiel too. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I, I get it. But he's like, no, no, no. I am the resurrection. That Ezekiel, what he's saying it because she's referring to Ezekiel. There's really not many passages in the Bible that talk about resurrection in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, as far as I can tell, is the only one. So what Jesus is, what he, she's saying is, yeah, I read Ezekiel 37. And what does Jesus say? I am Ezekiel 37. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, which mm. is a profound line. But what he's Boom. essentially saying is, the Old Testament, I am it. I am its fulfillment, point blank, period, full stop. Which yeah. is more profound, I think, than we realize here. No wonder she wants to sit at his feet all the time. <laughs> yeah. Which, but again, to put this in the context of how the church has arranged these readings. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm that. That is me. Um, and then they go and, and um, she says, I believe and all these things. And then they come into town. Mary is stewing. Mary's ticked off, right? And they're like, hey, Mary, Jesus is here. He's calling for you. And she goes and she, uh, what's that? she went out quickly. And she, she confronts him. She doesn't even say hello. She's like, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. What is right. the matter with you? Uh, my brother wouldn't have died. And he's, she is ticked off. And people will read this and commentators give Mary a really hard time. Here's the question. Is Mary right? I mean, according to Jesus's pattern, yes, because he said, hey, let's, because he says, hey, I'm going to hang out here until Lazarus dies. Yeah. However, how long does he hang out? Three days? Two days. Two so days. Does he stay there for two days? When he gets to Bethany, how long had Lazarus been dead for? Three. Four days. Oh. So she's wrong in a certain sense. It's weird. I'm not proposing I mean, on, an on answer a, on, to a, you. on a practical level, yes. But John, and I don't fully understand this, so I'm throwing it out to you. John knows what he's doing. He's giving you some very specific numbers. And he knows that those numbers don't add up. And he's trying to lead us somewhere. He's uh -huh. like, well, first of all, why did Jesus sit tight for two days? And did Jesus know that Lazarus, by that time, Lazarus was already dead, right? 
If he died four days prior, if Jesus sat around for two days, Lazarus was already dead. So why does he arbitrarily sit for two days? Isn't it strange? Did he wait till the Sabbath? I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not proposing an answer. I really don't. And I haven't studied this passage enough to know exactly what people think. I just want to pose the question because for John, time actually matters. I think part of it. I, I don't know what the travel time is from where Jesus I mean, was down. That was in an, I was. I was googling it in my brain. <laughs> Let my brain Google that for you. But the point is, I suppose it doesn't really matter. That's the idea, because Martha, uh, Mary rather, Mary is right and wrong simultaneously. How, okay. If Jesus, if Jesus had wanted to, he could have kept him alive. Jesus hurrying or taking it kind of slow doesn't matter. Right. Because he's Lord of much more than that. It's not just, Jesus, if you'd just gone a little bit faster, you could have made it and you could have saved the day. And I guess that's kind of what I'm going back to with our reflection on the first readings. It's not that we have this God who's just going to step in at the last minute and save the day. Jesus literally sits around to prove that no matter what the circumstances, I am the Lord of life and death. I am in control of everything. And I think he actually wants to make sure. So legally speaking, in the Jewish world, someone had to be dead for three days to declare him dead or her. To issue a death certificate, you had to be dead at least three days because, you know, if it's only a day and a half or maybe two days, maybe there's a chance that we misjudged it or they're just sleeping really, really soundly. And, you know, they didn't have the medical technology to, to <laughs> yeah, figure that absolutely. out. Absolutely. But they're like, if they don't wake up after three days, we're, we're pretty confident. They're, they're really dead, which is why Jesus, Jesus staying in the grave for three days is not an arbitrary number. He had to make it proven that he was absolutely dead. With Lazarus, he even goes a step beyond. He's like, I'm going to make sure he's been dead, confirmed dead. For days. I mean, this is before I come. This is a big question for Catholic theology: is at what point does the soul leave the body? Mm. Like, After four days. Well, no, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, that's a, that's a question for us. I mean, is like so. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's I mean, that would make sense. I mean, Jesus is just making confirmation. I think I think that's what he's doing. Now I still don't know how the days kind of work out, but I think at the end of the day, what he's trying to show is it doesn't matter because. And I'm reading that so much into my own life because we have all these time frames and these calendars and, and the, uh, the timetables that we need God to work on, right? right? And I need him to have this done by this time or else my life is going to sink. And I have this deadline and I need this person to make this decision about this thing that's going to impact my life. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to be really upset and mad at God because he didn't answer my prayers, right? right? And if you'd have just showed up a couple months ago, Lord, and f- answered this prayer, the, Lord always, the Lord's never late, but he's rarely early, right? Yeah. In this case, it seems like he's late. A wizard is not. never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Gandalf. See, I know some nerdy references. But at the same time, I love Mary. I'm not saying Mary's wrong. I'm saying Mary's very right because it's precisely the honesty that she has. Because Mary, notice, Mary is not unwavering in her belief. She knows fully who this Jesus is. And she knows without the shadow of a doubt that if he wanted to, he could do whatever he wants. And he, she's mad because she does not understand. And it's kind of what we were talking about last week. This idea of being honest with God about our lack of understanding. Right. She's like, you could have saved him. Where were you? Why didn't you come? I know who you are. Right. But she's got this almost familial freedom with Jesus to be like, come on, man. I counted on you. And there's some of my most fruitful prayer times are when I have that kind of honesty. Like, Jesus, I really needed you. Why didn't you show up? 
And there's usually an answer to that. Oh, it's because I actually had something bigger that I was planning. You know, why didn't this particular thing I was looking for, you know, to happen for the AICT or the Aquinas Institute this fall? I really wanted this thing to work out. Oh, surprise, God was going to send a baby into my life in January that I hadn't anticipated. Oh, that's why it didn't work out in that time. But I was frustrated and I was a little upset. Yeah. Trying to figure out God's timetable. And I think this story is just Jesus trying to drive home. You're not going to get my timetable, but I'm still the Lord of life and death. And I'm still going to rise this guy from the from the dead. This is why people, when when he's like, let me go see his tomb. What does he say? He says, uh, um, so there's going to be a stench. Yeah, there's going to be a stench. Jesus says, I want to, I, I want to ask you about this. Okay. Jesus is perturbed. He's ticked off a little okay. bit. And he came to the tur- to the tomb, tomb. The tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across it, and Jesus said, "Take away the stone." Later on, the women will come to the tomb where Jesus is buried on Easter Sunday, and they're saying to themselves on the way, who will roll away the stone for us? Yeah. And I wonder, I don't know, do you see any mileage there? Jesus says, somebody roll away the stone. They're all saying, who's going to roll away the stone? I wonder if what Jesus is saying is, hey, somebody do this. Ultimately, it's mine. I do it. I need somebody to actually participate. I need you guys to cooperate. I need the stone rolled away. But I am the one at the end of the day who rolls away the stones. I'm the one who's master of life and death. Ooh, I like I like I like the line of thoughts you're thinking. I mean, I just kept on thinking of Mumford and Sons, but like <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking that line's gonna be so explicit in John's gospel absolutely. at the end. I I think that uh I mean absolutely. I used to have that back when I had an old school, you know, PC when I worked at the Archdiocese. That was a little thing that ran across my screen that said, Who will roll away the stone for us? It's just always been a really powerful line for me. Who will roll away the stone? Yeah, I'm going to roll away the stone. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I, I ultimately, it's Jesus' strength who's going to... I mean, in a certain sense, it's like once the stone is rolled away, though, like it's the opening of Eden. I mean, it's it's like the opening of heaven. It, like the stone hmm. is more than just the figurative stone to the grave. Absolutely. It's like, it's, Absolutely. It's, it it's actually, it's, it's taking us all the way back to Ezekiel. It says, yeah. I will open your graves and have you rise from them. Yes, that's it exactly. And it's like you may ex- be experiencing full dryness. There's no life. We're going to go all the way into the very depths, and I am going, like, the stone will be rolled away, and it's all going to be ready. It's going to be amazing. I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing this parallel between, you know, Ezekiel said the bones were very dry, and they're all saying the tomb is going to be really stinky, mm. very dry, just because just God, just because we have this God who wants to drive home the point. The, yes. dry, the bones are real dry. The tomb is real stinky. It's way past the time that you thought I could do anything about it. And that sometimes is the best time Ooh. for God to work. No, that's now the, it's way too late now. There is no hope for me. Dude, there is no chance. Yeah. Now take away the stone. And we'll see what's up. Dude, that's, that's it. That's it right there. I mean, like, dude, the Lord really does come through. But man... You wish he would he would do it sooner because it's exactly my that's exactly my experience with God. Yeah, is we take it he takes it pretty darn far because he needs some he needs to transform darkness into light. But but that's the thing because then going back to the psalm, he goes with a vengeance. It's not just it, it's more than what you were expecting because right. he opens that tomb and there's Lazarus. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. He's back. But like you said, Lazarus is gonna die again. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is saying in between the lines, yeah, no, this is really cool and this is really great, but it's not about Lazarus. 
It's about the nature of death. Death is going to be wiped away. Death is the one that's really stinky and needs to be kicked out. Lazarus is just the, he's just the down payment. It's the icing on the cake for what I'm about to do. With me, with the Lord, there is mercy and the fullness, fullness of redemption. With me, there's life for Lazarus and a destruction of death in a fullness, in a way that you never anticipated. But for the glory of God to be shown, I'm going to prolong it just a little bit, just so you can see how profound and full this actually is. Mm. Just so the world can actually witness Mm. what it's like when the light shines in the darkness and the darkness really can't overcome it. Yes. You guys, thanks for joining us. May uh, we see you for Palm Sunday? and May we. (laughs) We have a very holy week. Indeed. We'll see you then. Okay. Farewell. Bye. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.